Well, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 8. If you're a guest here, I would also encourage you, if you've got a bulletin, there's an outline that looks like this in the bulletin. You can follow along the Scripture and the outline of the sermon as well. We've been going verse by verse, week by week, through this Gospel account of Jesus Christ by perhaps his best friend in the earth, and that was John, the Apostle John. And this morning I'm preaching a message I've entitled, The Light of Life. This is a particularly long passage that we're going to look at that portrays uh, the profound reality that Jesus is the light of the world, and as the light, he brings life. Now, as we've been going through our study in the Gospel of John, we've seen that John organizes and arranges this Gospel account around seven signs and seven statements. The seven signs are miracles, and so we've seen some of those miracles already. Uh, The turning of water into wine was the first sign that we see in the Gospel of John. But John also organizes and arranges his Gospel account of Jesus around seven statements. They are I am statements, where Jesus takes the personal name of God, I am, and that's the name that God revealed in the burning bush to Moses, who am I supposed to tell the children of Israel that sent me? And he said, tell them. I am sent you. Jesus takes that personal name of God, ego eimi in Greek, and he says, I am. Now that is a declaration of deity. In fact, 45 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus appropriates that title to himself. So if some skeptic ever says to you, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God, say, have you ever read the Gospel of John? Because over and over again, Jesus claims to be God. But on seven of those occasions, he actually takes a character trait, a quality, and he attaches it to that personal name, I am. We've seen one of them already when he said, I am the bread of life. And with each of these I am statements, he's making a connection to the past and also a connection to the present. By connecting I am the bread of life to the past, he's looking backwards to the manna God gave from heaven to the wandering Israelites under the leadership of Moses. And he's saying, I am the bread of life. In other words, that was temporary bread that supplied food for a temporary need. I am the eternal bread who provides eternal life for you. And also connected to that was the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 men plus women and children by multiplying those small little barley muffins of bread to thousands where he multiplied that miraculously. Well, today we're gonna see where he makes the statement, I am the light of the world. And again, he's going to make a connection between something in the past and also something in the present. In fact, look at the second I am statement in verse 12 in your Bible or on the screen. It says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of of life. Again, just as he was connecting uh, the bread of life, I am the bread of life, to an Old Testament event, so too here, Jesus is connecting I am the light of the world to an Old Testament reality. And namely, it was how God, Yahweh, I am, led the people of Israel in their wilderness wanderings. Remember how he did that? He led them by a pillar of fire by day and a pillar of cloud by night. And that pillar, whether of fire or of cloud, 
had the Shekinah glory, the brightness, the presence of God leading them. And here Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. But not only is Jesus connecting this statement, I am the light of the world, to this Old Testament reality they would have been familiar with, but he's also connecting it to a present day experience they were in right then. Uh, If you've been with us through uh, our study of John chapter 8 and John chapter 7, you may remember that Jesus is experiencing all these exchanges during this festival known as the Feast of Booths. Not Feast of Booths, as some misheard me. No booze here. Feast of Tabernacles, of Tents, Booths, okay? So during the Feast of Booths, this is a, the most uh, attended pilgrimage feast on the Jewish calendar. It occurred in October. This is the last Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot is how it's called by the Jews today, in Jesus' life, in his earthly ministry. And he's appropriating something that happened in this event in the first century. We've seen him already do this once. If you've been with us, when Jesus said, made that bold statement, whoever is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. When he made that statement, it was at the high and holy moment on the last day of the feast when they would take the golden jar of water mixed with wine and they would lift that up and there's complete silence in the temple and the priest would pour that water and that wine upon the altar where blood would be shed for the sacrifice and the atonement of sins. And right when that priest is pouring that water mixed with wine on the altar, Jesus stands up, the scripture says, and proclaims in a loud voice, come to me if you're thirsty. I am living water. He's appropriating this most holy and sacred activity and ritual and says, all of this is pointing to me. And now here in this same Feast of Booths, he's doing the exact same thing again. See, something would happen, we understand from Jewish history, during this Feast of Booths, it's called the Temple Illumination. And this would happen every day during the eight-day feast. I've got a picture of it. During this Feast of Booths, there would be seven, excuse me, four 70-foot-tall lanterns, and you can see an artist's rendition of what those would be. And each of those lanterns, 70 feet up in the air, would have four lamps attached to the top. And at the end of every day, priests, and the the Mishnah says they would be young priests, because you don't want old priests climbing those ladders. The young priests would climb the ladders with five gallons of olive oil and fill each of those bowls with oil. And then they would light those lanterns, and all four of them with four lamps on each one would illuminate all of Jerusalem. It would illuminate everything, not just the temple. And so what's happening here is at this very sacred moment, Jesus says as they're lighting those lanterns, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. No doubt Jesus was saying that as he was standing there in the temple, in the court of the women, which is what's portrayed in that image. And I'll just tell you, when, when I initially read these verses that follow that we're going to consider today, and then as I met with, uh, we've got a sermon writing team that I meet with on Tuesday where we talk about the text. At the end of observing this passage, I was like, how in the world am I going to preach this? <laughs> because we couldn't find really much connection uh, in the passage, it just seems like this, this heated exchange, this debate between Jesus and the Pharisees and the religious leaders that want to see him dead, and he's kind of answering their questions, but really uh, kind of hidden answers in there. 
But I, I prayed for illumination, and the Lord did, as the light of the world, give me some illumination this week, I believe. And my prayer has been that you would be illuminated too, not by me, but by the Spirit of God. So there are two paragraphs that follow this I am statement, I am the light of the world. And so because of that, I've got two main points on my outline. Here's the first thing. Number one, Jesus is the light to overcome darkness. Jesus is the light to overcome darkness. You know, we understand there are lots of different elements that we need in order to live. We need water. We need food. We also need oxygen. We need oxygen. If you go a few days without water, you'll still be alive and okay. If you go weeks without food, you can still live, but you can only go minutes without oxygen. In fact, doctors tell us that within four minutes of being deprived of oxygen, permanent brain damage begins to occur in our brains. And so I want you to imagine that somebody came and they said, I am oxygen personified. I am the oxygen of life. And unless you have me, the oxygen of life, you will die. You can't live. You must have me. And what if somebody began to say, no, you, we don't need oxygen. You're crazy. Oxygen is not that important. That's essentially what Jesus is doing here. Because just like we need oxygen to live, I don't know if you know it or not, we need light to live. Without light, we would die, and everything on the planet would die. And that's what's something of what's happening in this passage and the Pharisees, these critics, begin to question Jesus' profound statement, and they try to poke holes in his assertion. I want you to see how he do, they do this, beginning in verse 13 through 20. Again, this is a lengthy passage, but we're going to read all of it because I think it's important to get the context. Verse 13, so the Pharisees said to him, right after he makes this proclamation, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him for his hour had not yet come. Again, I was having some difficulty trying to connect this conversation with his critics to this declaration, I'm the light of the world. But then I went back to the old Bible interpretation principle in my study this week, and that is look for repeated words or phrases, right? If you're studying the Bible, students, look if there's a word that's repeated over and over again, and that's going to give you some insight into what the meaning is. And the word that I came around that's repeated here is a conjunction. Conjunction, junction. What's your function? Good, you're children of the 70s, just like me. The conjunction is the conjunction if, if. Three times, Jesus uses that conjunction. And, and the Greek word for if can also be translated since or although. I want us to consider these three if statements or since statements or all those statements that Jesus gives. And in so doing, he gives us some characteristics of light. First of all, he illuminates his identity. 
He illuminates his identity. That's exactly what Jesus does as the light. He illuminates. Again, think about this event. Four massive lanterns illuminating not just the temple, but all of Jerusalem. You could see it for miles away. They're illuminating. And Jesus is saying, I'm the great illumination. I'm the one who illuminates not just Jerusalem, but the entire world, the entire human race. And the particular thing he illuminates here, listen, is his identity, who he is, his fundamental nature as a person. And he does that by using this first if conjunction. Look again at verse 14. Jesus answered, even if or since or although I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I came from or where I am going. He's illuminating to them and to us in the scripture aspects of his identity, his origin, where he came from. He is from heaven. He is from above. He is otherworldly. In our vernacular here in the South, he ain't from around here, right? Jesus ain't from around here. He's otherworldly. Now, we know he was in Jerusalem. He was in Israel. He's from Galilee and Nazareth and the little sleepy town of Bethlehem. But ultimately, Jesus is from heaven. You know, here in our community of Lookout Valley, and I know about a third of the people who attend our church aren't from this community or don't live in this community. You drive from other communities, but most of you live in this community. And if you've lived here any length of time, you know there's something of a, well, they ain't from around here. Y'all ever experienced that? Come on, be honest with me, right? Y'all ain't from around here. And so there are people here who have been here for generations, and their families have been here for generations, and there are some of you who moved here this year. You just came here, and we're glad you're here. And so we have this dichotomy of the old-timers and the newcomers. Because something else that's really fascinating about this community is there's not only a dichotomy between the old-timers and the newcomers, there's also a great dichotomy between the haves and have-nots, the incredibly wealthy and the incredibly impoverished. Within a couple of miles of our church, we have dozens of million-dollar-plus homes. Right across Cummings Highway, we have a trailer park. There is a massive economic diversity in our community. Where's the one place that diversity should be erased? Right here. When we come together, we're not coming together as, well, you ain't from around here. I'm an old-timer. I'm a Lookout Valley from way back. You just moved here from California of all places. We come here under the gospel. We don't measure people by your income, by your education, by your social status. We come under the gospel. We're one people. And regardless of the tremendous diversity that takes place in this community and even in this congregation, as Daryl prayed and led us to pray, we ought to have unmistakable, intense unity because of the joy we have in Christ. So that's one aspect about the light. He illuminates his identity. I'm not from around here. I'm not from around here. Here's the second thing he does. He exposes error. He exposes error. Notice the second conjunction, if, in verse 16, yet even if or since or although I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. 
since I judge. Make no mistake about it, Jesus makes judgments. Jesus is the judge. He is your judge. In fact, Jesus made this statement. We looked at it several months ago in in chapter 5, verse 22. He said this, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. I told you this when we studied this passage months ago, that when we stand before the judgment seat to give an account for our lives, we will be standing before Jesus. We will be standing before the one with the scars in his hands, with the scars in his forehead from the crown of thorns that was impaled on his head. It will be Jesus who executes justice, not just on the nations, but on his church. He's the judge. And as the judge, and he he tells the Pharisees here, my judgment is true. It is right. It is just. It is good. And as the judge, as the light of the world, his judgment exposes. Right? Exposes our sin. If you've ever come under the light of Jesus' judgment, you have walked through that painful process. My sin has been exposed. Some of you have probably experienced this phenomenon at your home. I know I have. Sorry, I'm going to tell on us. And that whenever the sun kind of is in a particular part in the sky and the sunlight shines through a window brightly, what does it reveal on the furniture? (laughs) Dust, right? And when that happens, you've got one of two options. One, you can say, oh, and you can go dust the furniture, or you can pull the drapes, right? Pull the shades down. (laughs) I don't see any dust here. That's one of the things light does. It exposes the dirt. I really discovered that this week. This, earlier this week, I uh, opened a drawer in my desk. A drawer I don't access very much. It's, it's got a few knickknacks here. It's got a box. It's in the office. You want to make sure you know this was in the office, not at our home. <laughs> this drawer has some ibuprofen, some Pepto-Bismol, you know, just things like that. And there's also a pack of gum in there. So this last week, I opened the drawer, and this is what the pack of gum looked like, Eli. And I said, oh, I think I've got a varmint in my desk. So I go over to Wade's office, and I said, hey, Wade, have you seen any evidence of a mouse in the office anywhere? He says, yeah, a couple weeks ago, but I took care of it. I said, oh, okay, good. I'm glad you took care of it. Of course, I kept the pack of gum because two-thirds of it's still good. (laughs) This is a true story. So the next day, I open that same drawer, and this is what I see. (laughs) He's still there. So what did I do? Well, let me just put it this way. The mouse no longer has minty fresh breath. (laughs) And I still still have the pack if anybody wants some of the gum. It's right here. (laughs) The darkness hid the evil. (laughs) But when the light shone in, it exposed... The error, it exposed the error of that mouse's ways. Everyone, look at John 3.20. Jesus said this to Nicodemus. He says, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Lest his works should be exposed. We like to keep things in the dark. We like to keep things hidden. We like to push things down. Here's a challenge I have for you this week. I would guess that most of us, except for the sane ones, are on some type of social media. 
You very smart people, you are not on any kind of social media. God bless you for that. But I would guess most of you are on some form of social media, whether it's Facebook or TikTok, that Chinese spy app, or whether it's Snapchat or Instagram or Twitter or Be Real is the new one. Here's my challenge to you this week. Because here's how Jesus shines light and exposes our sin through the light of his word, through the light of the scripture. Every time you habitually go to tap that app and it opens up, let that be a reminder to you this week. Close it, open your Bible app, and feed on the scripture, not on your social media feed. Just spend some time, the the amount of time you would commit to reading and scrolling through Instagram or Snapchat or any of those tools of the devil. (laughs) Read the Bible. Read the scripture and see if that does not open up to your mind the truth about who Jesus is one and the truth about yourself. It is a mirror of God. So Jesus, as the light, he illuminates his personal identity. Jesus, as the light, exposes our error. Thirdly, Jesus, as light, he guides us to God. Here's the third if in the paragraph in verse 19. Jesus says, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. If you know Jesus today, listen, you know God. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know God. And that's exactly what Christ is saying. You know, the reason the Jews hit those, lit those huge lamps and the lanterns was because those were commemorating something. This Feast of Booths, where they put up tents, was to commemorate their wilderness wanderings as they put up tents and they traveled and they were nomadic and they went from this town to the other town. But those lights commemorated the pillar of fire by day and the pillar of cloud by night, the light that gave them guidance. If the pillar stopped, they stopped. If the pillar started to move, they packed up and they followed the pillar. And Jesus is saying, as he appropriates those lanterns and says, and that remembrance, he says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the one that gives you guidance. I'm the one that guides you to God. In fact, look at Exodus 13, 21. The Lord went before them. This is in the Old Testament. By day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. This flaming glory of God which gave them guidance, Jesus says, it's me. And Jesus still gives us his light today, doesn't he? He still illuminates our paths. What does that remind you of? The psalmist in Psalm 119, he's saying these words, your word is is a lamp to my feet and a light on my path. The word of Jesus that he has breathed out for us, it guides us, it directs us. This is what light does. It's a fundamental characteristic of light. So Jesus, as the light, he he guides us to God. He exposes our error and our sin. He illuminates his personal identity as not being from around here. But interestingly, Jesus makes another connection about light. Look at our focal point. Uh, passage again. Verse 12, kind of the heading of this whole section. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus is saying that as light, he actually brings life to us. He brings life to us as light. 
That leads to the second thing. Not only does Jesus the light to overcome the darkness, but secondly, Jesus is the life to conquer death. Jesus is the life to conquer death. Let's look at that second paragraph of this section, beginning at verse 21. I'll read through verse 30. So he said to them again, I am going away. You will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So in his ongoing conversation with the Jewish leaders, Jesus continued to anger them, to just really poke them. And he claimed that his father was in heaven. But Jesus, would, uh, the Pharisees, excuse me, would receive none of it. They saw him as a religious imposter. They saw him as somebody who's trying to just make a name for himself. But Jesus is communicating some pr- profound things about the life that comes from him as the light of the world. In fact, three things I want to point out. As the light who is life, he is the source of life. He is the source of life. He says, you are from below, I'm I'm from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I mentioned earlier that without light on our planet, there would be no life, right? How many of you remember the show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? Anybody remember that one? With Jeff Foxworthy as the host, They were usually smarter than he was, and me. Here's some fifth grade science, okay? What is photosynthesis? What is photosynthesis? I've got a picture of the photosynthesis process. Photosynthesis is the conversion of light energy into chemical energy. And so you have a plant that absorbs water and carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but the sunlight is the key component that then converts that chemical energy into life. It converts it into sugars, into green plants. Without sunlight, plants would not grow. In the same way, without the S-O-N sunlight, S-O-N sunlight, we would not grow. Why? Because just like the sun, S-U-N, is otherworldly, it's outside this environment, but it's necessary for growth. Jesus ain't from around here. Jesus is otherworldly, he is necessary for growth. And when Jesus speaks of the world here, you are of this world, I'm not of this world. When he uses this word world, in fact, the entire New Testament, he's not talking about planet earth. He's talking about the world system, the world's way of doing things. And Jesus here is speaking to, listen, conservative religious leaders. 
These are not the religious liberals of their day, the Sadducees, who were always sad, you see. This was the religious conservatives, the Pharisees. They believe staunchly the Bible. They defended the Bible. They protected the traditions of the Bible. And Jesus says to them, you religious conservatives, you're functioning in the world's system." these gatekeepers of theological truth. He tells them, you are of this world. Friends, that ought to be a warning to us 48 hours from the midterm elections. It ought to be a warning to us two days from election day. Because no matter how much it is cloaked in religion, and listen, I have voted in every election, primaries, general election, midterms, you name it. Since I've been 18 years old, I've voted in every single election I've been eligible to vote in. Jesus does not breathe life into dead hearts through politics. Jesus will not give life to this country through your vote. But I'm telling you as your pastor... Go vote. <laughs> vote your Christian principles. Vote biblical, princi- vote biblical principles. But you've got to vote with this understanding. Your vote won't change people's hearts. Only the light of Jesus changes people's hearts. And if that is true, and we can give a hearty amen to that truth, shouldn't we give an exorbitant proportional amount of time, energy, thought, prayer, emotion to the gospel going to people rather than politics? He says, you're religious conservatives, but you're functioning in world systems as if world systems are going to change anything. I'm not of this world. I have a completely different system. He says, I am the source of life. Number two, I am the salvation for life. Not once, Not twice, but three times Jesus makes a bold declaration about them in this exchange. Look at verse 21 and 24. In verse 21, he says, I am going away, you will seek me, and you will die in your sins. Verse 24, I told you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Listen, if Jesus repeats something, we ought to pay attention. And he just lobs three hand grenades that completely explode their self-righteousness and their own self-confidence. And he says, you're going to die in your sins. You're going to die in your sins. And in case you missed it, you're going to die in your sins. Now, we all realize if the Lord tarries, we're all going to die physically, right? And if I could choose the way I want to die, I would just want to go to sleep and wake up in heaven. How about you? Man, that'd be the way to go, right? We don't get to choose, unfortunately. There are lots of different ways people die. Some of them are long, drawn-out deaths, painful deaths, uncomfortable deaths, and we do all we can to bring comfort to those. We can't really choose how we're going to die physically. But even though there are many ways you can die physically, there's only two ways you can die spiritually. You will either die in your sins or you will die in the Lord. It's the only two options. Either you will die in your sins or you will die in 
the Lord. In fact, you know what you have to do to die in your sins? Nothing. You don't have to do anything to die in your sin. I remember this track I came across several years ago. The front of it says this, what must I do to go to hell? It's a provocative question. What must I do to go to hell? And the inside of the track says this, the answer is nothing. Our default position is hell-bent. Our default condition is lost, separated from God. What do you have to do to go to hell? Nothing. But I don't know if you caught it, but in these three truth bombs that Jesus exploded on their self-righteousness, he gave an escape clause. Did you see it? Unless you believe that I am he. You need to know that in the Greek manuscript, that word he, that personal pronoun, is not in the original. It's been supplied to help us understand. So literally, it reads in Greek, unless you believe that I am. He's God. He's the one true God. He possesses all the characteristics and all the nature of God. I am. I told you earlier, I think I told you, 45 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus appropriates this personal name of God. I am. In fact, is this really what he's saying? That he's God? Well, that's the way they took it. Look at the last two verses of this chapter 8 of John. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They wanted to pelt Jesus with rocks until he's dead because he said, hey, in case you missed it, these dozens of times I've said it, I am. Before Father Abraham existed, I am. Before any of this religious muckety-muck happened, I am. I am God. They said, let's kill him. Kill him. But again, what Jesus is saying in verse 24 is that unless you believe the fundamental aspects about who he is, unless you trust, you depend, you rely on Jesus, his person, his work, you will die in your sins. Sometimes you may hear people express this sentiment. It's about a relationship, not religion. It's about, um, you know, worshiping Jesus. It's about him as a person, not propositions on a page. I don't want doctrine and theology. Just give me Jesus. And we can certainly warm to those kind of sentiments. I've probably said something like that before, too. If someone says something like that, just give me Jesus. I don't want all that doctrine and theology. My question would be, okay, which Jesus? Which Jesus do you want? Do you want the Jesus of Islam? Because the Muslims believe Jesus is a real person, but they simply believe he was a prophet sent from God, not the Son of God. Do you want the Jesus of Mormonism? That says Jesus is a spirit brother of Lucifer. You want that Jesus? Maybe you want the Jesus of Jehovah's Witnesses who say, Jesus, yes, he's a God, but he's not the God. Maybe you want that Jesus. Or maybe you want the Jesus of liberal mainline modern-day Protestantism that says, oh, Jesus, he wasn't virgin-born. Jesus, he didn't perform any miracles. Jesus, he wasn't physically resurrected from the dead on the third day. But we want to follow him as a 
good teacher. Do you want that Jesus? Or maybe you want the Roman Catholic Jesus. The Roman Catholic Jesus says, oh, if you want to turn Jesus' heart, you've got to pray to his mama, because he always does what his mama says, so pray to Mary. Which Jesus do you want? If you say, no, I don't want any of those Jesus, then you know what you have to do? You have to start making some theological propositions. You've got to start delineating some doctrine. No, the Jesus I want is the Jesus of the Bible who was virgin born, who was tempted in every way, we're tempted yet without sin, who was hung on a cross to take the punishment for our sin. And on the third day, his cadaver laying there for three days dead, the Spirit of God entered that cadaver and brought new life. And all who trust in him can have that same resurrection power in them. You want that, Jesus? Yeah, me too. But we got to start delineating who is our Jesus. And Jesus says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. He's the salvation for life. He's the source of life. Thirdly, as we close, he is the sacrifice for life. In verse 28, Jesus says, when you, talking to the Pharisees, have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Jesus uses this lifted up language three times in the Gospel of John. But we saw one of them months ago when we were in John chapter 3, as Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, Nick at night, right? Just before John 3.16 in verses 14 and 15, notice what Jesus says to Nicodemus. He says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What does this lifted up mean? He says it in John 3. He says it in John 8. What is he talking about being lifted up? Well, he explains clearly. Actually, John, in his commentary of Jesus' words, explains clearly for us in chapter 12. Look at John 12, verse 32 and 33. This is literally hours before the cross. Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself. What are you talking about, Jesus? John, the inspired author, tells us he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So six months prior, it's the Feast, the feast of Booths in October. Six months later, during the Feast of Passover, he will die. And to those same Pharisees, he says, you're going to lift me up. And he meant lift up on a cross. Six months from here, he'll be betrayed by a friend. Six months from here, he would be put on a sham of a trial before these religious Sanhedrin. Six months from here, they would turn him over to the coward Pilate, the Roman governor. Six months from here, he would hand them over to the torturers, who would beat him 39 times with a cat of nine tails, who would whip him, who would put that crown of thorns on his head, who would make him carry his instrument of execution up that hill. Six months from here, he would hang, being lifted up between heaven and earth, and he would die. And it was there on that cross that he died my death. It was there in that death that I too died 
so that he could give me his life. And he's done the same for you, friend. He was the sacrifice, the punishment bearer, the atoning propitiation is the Bible word for our sin. And verse 30 says of our focal passage, after he says all this, that many on that day believed. Because he said, unless you believe that I am, you're going to die in your sin. So I have a simple question. Do you believe? Do you trust? Do you cling to? Do you rely upon who Jesus is and what Jesus has done? And perhaps you're here this morning and you have believed. You do trust in Jesus. What now? It's interesting, as Daryl pointed out, in John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But at the beginning of his ministry, during that Sermon on the Mount, he made a statement about us. Notice John, uh, Matthew 5, 14 and following. Speaking to his followers, his disciples, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I, I equate this to our moon of our planet, right? The moon, when there's a full moon, if you're driving at night, you cannot even notice you don't have your headlights on, right? It is so bright, it illumines the, the entire road in front of us. But does the moon produce light? It's just a rock orbiting our planet. It has no light-producing value or capacity. What does it do? It reflects the S-U-N sun. How are we the light of the world? In the very same way. In our fallenness and our brokenness, we don't have the capacity to express joy. But joy is the fruit of the Spirit. We don't have the capacity to love people who are ain't from around here, <laughs> who are different than us. But with the Spirit, we can love them. We are the light of the world as we reflect his light. And what did Jesus say? When you shine that light before others, people will see your good works. They're not going to give you glory. They're going to give Lookout Valley Baptist Church glory. They're going to give glory to your Father who is in heaven. As we prepare to close and respond, let's reflect on Jesus as the Son of God, who he is. Have you believed in him and are you reflecting him? And as you reflect him, you will illuminate through his spirit, his person, and give God glory. Let's go on that mission now. And that leads to my last thought. We are called to portray the light to a darkened world and proclaim the life to a dead world.